You can turn your Bible to John chapter 14. We'll look at the end of the chapter today, the last paragraph, verses 25 through 31. That text is also in the bulletin for you on the next page. <clears throat> so Ed Welch is a counselor. Some of you are familiar with him, um, uh, with some of his books. He's an author. He's written some really helpful books, uh, several of my sort of go-to books uh, to help folks with various issues. Uh, one of them, a really good one, is called Running Scared. The subtitle is Fear, Worry, and the God of Rest. That's a great book. Running Scared by Ed Welch. I first picked it up uh, thinking, you know, I have a couple people in mind who are just freaking out about everything, and they probably need to read a book like this. Uh, Then I started reading it myself, figured I should probably do that if I was going to recommend it to somebody else or give it to others. So um, I read it myself. Honestly, I had no idea that so much of my life, so many of the things I do, so many of the ways that I act are driven by fear driven by fear. Uh, I'm anxious about unpredictable circumstances, circumstances that are beyond my ability to control and manage. I'm afraid of what other people think of me. I'm afraid of rejection. I'm afraid of pain, pain in general, but especially probably relational pain. I worry about money. I worry about job security. I worry about my children. I worry about things like persecution. I worry about the death of loved ones. I worry about my own death and a whole lot of more things that I worry about that I didn't realize I did before I read that book. Um, and every time I go back to that book, I've read it a few times now, uh, it surprises me how helpful it is to me, how helpful it is to me. It's like I'm constantly living in denial about how fearful I am. I am not aware of it most of the time. I wouldn't characterize myself as a fearful person. Um, it's like I'm afraid to know how afraid I am (laughs) until it gets pointed out clearly and directly in light of the gospel, which is the most helpful thing in Ed Welch's book, this most helpful thing he does. In fact, this is the most astonishing thing that he says, or at least one of them, I think. uh, You might expect the most frequent command in the Bible to be something like, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie, but actually, by far, the most repeated command in the scriptures is do not be afraid. By far. Do not be afraid. And I hear that, and my first instinct is to be suspicious. Maybe, maybe even to be afraid. Is it, that sounds too good to be true. Something must be going on here, right? Uh, I must be missing something. Why is that the most frequent command? In the scriptures, I'm sure God is saying that when he says, do not be afraid, he's saying it with frustration, with a scowl on his face, don't be afraid, you know, that's probably how he's saying it. If I, if I don't start getting this whole fear thing right, then I'm probably going to be in trouble. <laughs> so that's, um, that's, uh, that's just my fear talking, making it impossible to hear, don't be afraid, right? In reality, Jesus wants better for us than that we should live constantly in fear. He came to give us comfort and real peace in the most remarkable ways. And uh, this is what John Calvin says. This is a quote on the front of the bulletin here. He says, In us there is nothing but fear and disquiet. In Christ alone there is peace and joyousness. In Christ alone there is peace and joyousness. And he he shares it with fearful people. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. 
Father, we pray now that you would send your comforter, send the Holy Spirit, so that we can give attention to the things that Jesus has said, so that we can receive the gifts that Jesus has given us, especially so that we be mindful of the peace that is ours through the gospel of your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, and the Father's greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So at the end of the passage, Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. Um, We see Jesus and his disciples, they're leaving the upper room, which is where they've been in John's gospel here for the last couple chapters. Uh, They've been there for that evening, uh, the scene of the Last Supper. They they make their way out into the night. The other gospels record explicitly for us that Jesus is heading to the Garden of Gethsemane uh, with his disciples. And so that's where they're leaving to now. These chapters in John's gospel... Uh, what's come just before this and what is still to come, uh, these chapters are known as Jesus' farewell discourse. His farewell discourse, because he's saying goodbye, in a sense. He's talking about leaving his friends and going away, and he's talking about events that are just about to happen, um, predicting the future and setting himself resolutely on this path, predicting his, his death on the cross, and his resurrection and his going away ultimately into heaven <clears throat> so that he's no longer bodily with his people. So after his resurrection, he's going to be with the Father. So he won't be with the disciples much longer, not, not bodily, not the same way he has been for the last couple of years. <clears throat> he won't speak with them much longer in person, but he's, he's seeking to comfort them, and he's talking, he, he talks a lot about the Holy Spirit now. So when he goes to the Father and asks the Father, he and the Father together will be sending the Holy Spirit. God himself will enter into the disciples to be with them, not just with them, but in them forever, irrevocably. So Jesus says that when that happens, when he sends his Spirit, that's him coming to his disciples and he will be with them, not bodily, not until the great resurrection, not until the new heavens and the new earth, but, uh, but he will be with his disciples. He will be in his disciples forever in the person of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about throughout these chapters as a way to comfort his disciples. <clears throat> That's been God's plan all along. Jesus is not making his concession speech. He's not saying, the devil's beaten me, so I've got to leave. But here, at least I'll leave the Holy Spirit for you as sort of a consolation prize. No, the Father and Jesus have been working together toward this very goal from the beginning 
to dwell in us through the Spirit. That's been God's plan, and that was going to happen. And in this farewell discourse, Jesus is talking about the effects that that will have on us, the effects of the, the, the life of God in us, the Spirit of God dwelling in us, the changes that will take place in our lives because of the Spirit living in us, what Paul, in Galatians 5, calls the fruit of the Spirit. That's actually a lot of what Jesus is talking about here. Love and joy and peace are big themes in this section. We've talked about love before. We're going to talk more about joy probably next week. Uh, now, especially talking about peace, for example. Jesus is talking about not just any old peace. He isn't even assuming that you know what peace actually is. The disciples have in mind a conception of peace, and he's not talking about that, and he makes it explicit, and he teaches them what his own peace means. It's the peace that he has, explicitly not the same thing others mean by the word peace. He makes that explicit. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So we see, <clears throat> we see throughout the Gospels how Jesus and his disciples, their, their relationship is uh, usually characterized by speaking past one another, right? They're, they seem to be in the same room, having sort of the same conversation about the same words, but really the disciples are not understanding what Jesus is saying. Um, they, they have different understandings of what the nature of the conversation they're in. And the disciples are starting to worry about what it means that Jesus is going to go away. He's said it enough now. He's repeated it strongly enough that, uh, that they're starting to believe, actually, maybe, maybe he's going to leave in some way where he'll be inaccessible to us. They've been thinking that he was there to win a certain kind of victory for them. They had a, they had a category for their Messiah. Right? They've been thinking in terms of politics. They've been thinking they were sort of a little band of rebels just getting started. Freedom fighters, right? Overthrowing their Roman oppressors with Jesus as the chief insurrectionist who would be king afterward. They, they wanted something like the Pax Romana, right? Roman peace, the international peace. Sort of laughable, really. The, the peace between nations that Rome achieved by the sword and maintained through fear, strength, and power. They just wanted a better, stronger version of that, one that benefited them. Israel first. Make Israel great again. And that means overthrowing Rome and conquering or reconquering the world the same way Rome would do it if they were as strong as Jesus. <clears throat> but now they're getting the idea from Jesus they're starting to get it, starting to sink in, that he isn't going to be around much longer. What does that mean for their hopes for freedom? What does that mean for their national peace? What does that mean for themselves? When their leader is expecting to die, apparently to be crushed under Caesar's regime, great, we're supposed to, what, he's saying, we're supposed to carry on in his spirit? Is that what he's saying? Uh, what good will that do us when it's the spirit of a loser? The spirit of a failure. Everybody knows now that we've signed on to follow Jesus, and once they've gotten him, which it sounds like 
It's going to happen really soon. They're going to start looking for us. They're going to come looking for us. That doesn't sound like a very peaceful life to them. That sounds very troubling. Anxiety provoking. They're working with a conception of peace gotten from a fallen world. The, the kind of peace that you might attain to if you're smart enough, if you're strong enough, if you're lucky enough, if you're blessed enough, if you can do everything right and make no mistakes and control all the outcomes, that's the kind of peace you might attain to. It's the kind of peace that you work with every ounce of your strength to get eventually. The kind of peace that you fret about and worry about and stress about. The kind of peace that keeps you up at night and gives you ulcers. Does this sound like peace to you? Gives you ulcers because you're running scenarios to manage people and circumstances and manage your health. And in reality, all these circumstances, are it's, it's all well beyond your ability to control. So you never get that peace, do you? If I can just juggle everything while I do my best God impression, then I'll arrive at this thing called peace. Maybe. And that is the opposite of real peace. That's a fear-driven life. Read Ed Welch's book. Jesus is talking about something so fundamentally different from all of that, so much more significant so much more enduring, so much more wonderful than the kind of peace that the world has to offer. Real peace is so different, we don't even recognize it when Jesus gives it. Real peace is something that belongs to Jesus. Something that belongs to him. He has it. It's his. <clears throat> Ultimately, real peace is being right with God. When you think of that word, the definition that should come to your mind is being right with God. Being at rest in God. Being reconciled to God and in good relationship with God. Perfect relationship. And Jesus is the only human who ever had perfect peace with God. Fear, fear comes from taking matters into your own hands, taking circumstances, trying to manage them all, taking all of your life into your own hands and usurping God's role in your life and setting yourself up autonomously from God, being a law unto yourself, being your own judge, being your own authority. Fear goes hand in hand with that. Fear goes hand in hand with trying to control your own life to bring about whatever you think is a really good outcome. And Jesus himself never did that. He didn't do that for himself. Even though he was God in the flesh, and we have a conception of what that means, certainly he was controlling everything in his own life. But Jesus said, I do as the Father commanded me. That's what he says in our passage. Verse 31, I do as the Father has commanded me. He was in right relationship with God. He had perfect peace with God, and that relationship meant not that he would control his own life, take matters into his own hands, manipulate all the circumstances till they produced a good outcome for himself, that relationship with God would mean that he would trust 
and obey his father, even though it meant going to his own death on the cross. And he could see it coming. And that's the gospel, and that's what he wants the whole world to know has happened. That's what he wants the whole world to know. He says, continue on in verse 31, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. That's the heart of the gospel. It's true to say he's done everything that he's done so that you know that God loves you. But the heart of the gospel is so that the world may know that Jesus' relationship to the Father is perfect. That's what Jesus wants you to know. And that's why he obeys his Father. That's why he says in verse 28, if we had any sense at all, if we knew what was best for us, if we loved him, then we would be ecstatic that he was going to the Father. He enjoyed perfect peace with God. He enjoyed a perfect relationship with his Father. He gave it up for us at the cross. He suffered death on the cross for us as if he were a sinner out of fellowship with God who deserved to die. He didn't deserve to die. He wasn't a sinner. But he did die for us, and it's because of this that God looked at him raised him from the dead, welcomed him into his own presence, and established him over an everlasting kingdom of divine peace. And this is what it meant for Jesus to be in perfect relationship to the Father. All the events of his life, obeying his Father, laying down his life, because he loves the Father, and he wants the world to know that. I would have been scheming and fighting for my own security and power. I would have been worried, sick, scheming and fighting through, you know, if I can get security, if I can get power, if I get enough strength, marshal enough forces against the Roman Empire, I would hope that I would be able to make peace materialize for myself and my friends. But he had all peace, always. He had all peace, which meant he was leaving his life in his father's hands. His relationship with the Father was the nature of his peace. To say that he had all peace is actually the same thing as saying he had the Holy Spirit. He had the Holy Spirit. He had the one who is is his relationship with the Father in person. The Father lived in him, and he lived in the Father through the Holy Spirit, and this is the very gift that he gives to us. It's a gift. Because the Spirit was his to give. Right relationship with God was his to give. Mutual indwelling with God, where God is in us and we're in God, that was Jesus to give because it was his. And he has done it. He has given it. And the way that we have this peace, the way that we know it and experience it, is as we hear the gospel, as we remember Jesus and his words and his life, as we trust in who he is and what he's done for us, which we do through the Holy Spirit, whom he's given. It says in verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give it to you. 
So Jesus has been teaching his disciples the good news. He's revealing God to them for their relationship with God. And this is something that obviously throughout the Gospels they've had a hard time understanding at all. Uh, They had a hard time remembering it, apparently. Jesus said, the Spirit's going to have to bring to your remembrance all the things that I said to you and help you understand them, right? That's exactly why the Spirit would come to them after Jesus' death, after his resurrection, to give them sort of the whole picture, to reorient them in their conversation with Jesus so that they'd be connecting and on the same wavelength, right? To make it so they stop, pat, uh, stop talking past each other and connect with what Jesus has said to them, to point out all the things Jesus has said, and to make it all dawn on them for their faith. That's why the Spirit would come. The work of the Holy Spirit is to center our attention on Jesus Christ and to help us trust in him. Jesus said, now I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. He wasn't expecting them to believe very strongly right now. He knew they couldn't hear him fully yet. They couldn't trust him fully yet, but they would when the Holy Spirit came. And so they would have peace with God through faith in him. That would mean their peace. So Raymond Brown says in his commentary in John's Gospel here, the peace of which Jesus speaks has nothing to do with the absence of warfare, nor with an end to psychological tension, nor with a sentimental feeling of well-being. All things that we assume peace means, but the peace that Jesus is talking about, the divine relational peace that Jesus has himself because Jesus has the Holy Spirit without measure. This peace that he has given to his disciples, it doesn't mean that all the circumstances of your life get fixed up all nice and easy. It doesn't mean that for Jesus. You can see that in his life. And it doesn't mean that for you. The peace of God, which Paul says passes all understanding. It's not just something you can reason yourself to. It's not something that should be obvious in light of the circumstances of your life. It's a peace that passes understanding. It doesn't make sense in the world's terms, in the world's conception of peace. It isn't what you achieve if you're stressed out enough. It isn't what you achieve through enough planning, visualizing your goals. It isn't what you achieve through great finesse or strength control. The world's peace is circumstantial, gotten only if you can manage and rearrange your circumstances. Christ's peace is personal, and it's divine. It's divinely relational, and it transcends all events in your life, all events. It's what you can know about your relationship with God in the face of any kind of situation whatsoever. You can have Christ's own peace with God up front right now going into anything, facing anything, already having peace because it's been given as a gift. You can know no matter what you're facing, 
that God loves you. He has given himself to you. He lives in you. Whatever your circumstances are, they cannot be interpreted as God's hostility toward you. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. You have the Holy Spirit. So Leslie Newbegin said that the comfort which Jesus gives to his disciples at this moment of parting is not cotton wool for the timid, but steel for the courageous. With real peace, Jesus isn't wrapping us in nice little blankets and putting us in a protected room where everything's safe and nice and comfortable all the time. With real peace, Jesus said, rise, let us go from here out into the night to face his death. With real peace, Jesus went to meet his own death, his particular death, which was the worst thing that ever happened, the worst thing that anybody ever experienced. He didn't deserve to die. He was the innocent one. It's the most terrible thing. But Jesus faced it with peace, with real peace. You can meet life as it comes, step by step, knowing that it comes from God's own hand, and you have a perfect relationship with God freely given to you through Jesus, shared with you through the Holy Spirit. With real peace, with Christ's own peace given to you, you can even face death in all its unpredictability, uncontrollability, all of its pain, knowing that even though it strips away every illusion of control from you, it still can't separate you from the love of God that's found in Jesus Christ. That's real peace. You have it as a gift. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do pray now that by your Holy Spirit you would fix our minds on Jesus always, especially now, but always, um, giving us a vision, a true vision of what it means to have a right relationship with you. Reshape our expectations, reshape our assumptions about that, um, make us to know that you already have given us your peace as a gift of your grace, and help us to see how that works itself out in our lives as we give up control, give up autonomy from you, and rest in our relationship with you through all the circumstances of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.